for leading us in that time of worship, singing. It's great to be back amongst you this morning, this last Sunday of 2018. It's amazing how time marches on, isn't it? Another year in the books. But I was reminded of the words of the psalmist this morning. I was glad when they said unto me, let's go to the house of the Lord. Psalm 121, verse 1. It is so good to be among God's people, singing praises and studying his word. What a privilege. And I thank each and every one of you for being here this morning. Over the past number of weeks, we've been focusing on John chapter 13, verses 1 to 20, as Dan mentioned earlier. What an appropriate passage of scripture for us to turn to at this time of year. Turn with me now, if you have it already, to John chapter 13. This is the beginning of what some refer to as the Upper Room Discourse. The Upper Room Discourse begins in John chapter 13 and goes all the way through to the end of John chapter 16. These chapters, in these chapters, Jesus is found preparing the twelve for his imminent departure. The next 24 hours, he would experience betrayal, a mock trial, be beaten, abused, and then crucified. In Mark chapter 15, verse 37 reports, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. He died. But in those final hours, he was not only determined to fulfill all that the Father had given him to do, he was also focused on preparing these 12 men to continue the work that he had begun. Their two and a half years of come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men was quickly coming to an end. Here in chapters 13, through 16, we overhear, we eavesdrop, we have the privilege of listening in to Jesus as he prepares or gives his final instructions to his closest companions. So as we wrap up 2018 and stand on the very threshold of a brand new year, there is no better time to reflect on and be reassured of God's love for you and for me. Look at John chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come and that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The Greek word translated there, the end, is telos. It certainly means to the end of his life, but it could also mean to the uttermost or eternally. And so although, although this is addressed to the twelve within this historic context, the implications reach down through the ages to every believer 
to all those who are trusting Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. And so our theme song for this series of messages has been, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. What a great reminder with which we can head into a brand new year, 2019. God loves you, and he loves me. With a love that overcomes deterrence. We saw that in part one, verses one to five. With a love that displays itself, based on verses four and five. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He got up from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. It was an unprecedented PDA, public display of affection. This morning, we are going to identify yet another attribute of this enduring, persevering, to the very end kind of love that Jesus had for his disciples, and not just for the twelve, but for you and me, and to all genuine believers. If you're able, I'd like to invite you at this time to stand with me for the reading from God's Word. John chapter 13, beginning at verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments. And taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So when Jesus had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then the Lord and teacher, wash your feet. You also ought to wash one another's feet. 
for I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is the it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I sent receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, we are told, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? You mean what you say. What you say goes. Thank you for this self-revelation that we hold in our hands, inspired and preserved by your Holy Spirit. This living and powerful word is sharp as a surgeon's scalpel, cutting through everything, whether doubt or defense, laying us open to listen and obey. Nothing and no one is impervious untouched or insulated from God's word. We can't get away from it, no matter what. And yet, admittedly, that doesn't prevent us from trying. We ignore it, dismiss it, make excuses for why we don't choose to obey it. Forgive us, we pray. Enable us this morning to have ears that hear and eyes that see your truth about life, about ourselves, about your relationship toward us. May we catch a fresh glimpse of your love for us so that we are better equipped to live for you in 2019, even this week as we face the challenges of living in a less-than-perfect world, full of less-than-perfect people, immersed in less-than-perfect circumstances, may your love sustain us. Provide us with courage and strength to do the right thing again and again and again. Empowered by your Spirit for your glory, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jesus loves us, this we know, with a love that is patient. Love is patient. And yes, I'm well aware of that cute little rhyme. Patience is a virtue. Possess it if you can. Seldom found in women, never in men. <laughs> Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 for just a moment. Some may recognize this reference as the love chapter. 
you'll very seldom go to a wedding ceremony where some kind of reference isn't made to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. But let me begin reading at verse 1. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Verse 4 begins with, love is patient. That's the very first thing that comes to God's mind as he begins to define what love is. I think that's significant. Listen as I read this explanation of the of verses 4 through 8. I found this really well written. Now, it's now it is interesting the way these verses are organized. The first two statements of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4, in the Greek text say, the love. A definite article is there. The love is patient, and the love is kind. Then it does not repeat the words, the love, again until verse 8 when it says, the love never fails. What that means is that there are two definitions for love. Patience and kindness. The next eight are negatives. Did you see that? The negatives are organized in the Greek grammar to describe patience and kindness. For instance, if you are patient, you are not envying, you are not parade yourself, you are not puffed up, you do not, you do not behave rudely, you do not think about evil, you are not provoked. All of those things are negative. It's describing the two qualities of love, which are patience and kindness. And the first and foremost which seems to be, make it the primary quality of love from God's perspective, is love is patient. I think that is significant. Now let's turn back to John chapter 13. Jesus, having loved his own, loved them to the end by patiently correcting Peter's, and I want to add, his disciples' misunderstandings. I'm including his disciples because as we become more and more familiar with Peter, 
in these gospel accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus, more often than not, he stands up as the spokesperson for the twelve. Peter was never one to be shy or, or slow to speak. Some would add, even before thinking. Others would say that the only time he took his foot out of his mouth was to put the other one in. I think that's being unkind. But although he may appear impulsive at times, I think it's just as important to note that Peter, who is, is always named first when there's a list of the 12 disciples, when the scriptures name the 12, Peter's name is first in the list. We might say that he is first among equals. And so perhaps on this occasion, Peter was just verbalizing what all the rest were thinking, but not saying. The more reserved personalities were laying back. After all, Peter was in the room. And notice it's plural. Misunderstandings. Three times, Peter expresses his thoughts in contrast to what Jesus is trying to say and do. Jesus patiently loved him to the end by correcting his misunderstandings. Look at verses 6 and 7. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? What's happening here? How would you describe Peter's reaction or his initial reaction? Shocked? Surprised? Embarrassed? Certainly reluctant. We're not told if Peter was first in the lineup to get his feet washed and wiped. Or was he somewhere down the line? But what we do know is that Jesus arrived at his feet. Peter was distraught. Lord, do you wash my feet? Lord is an expression of respect. But, the Greek, but in the Greek, the personal pronouns here are in an emphatic position. Lord, do you wash my feet? If Peter was texting this message, both you and my would be all in caps. And maybe he would even use a bold font. Peter's mind, in Peter's mind, this was just completely unacceptable. We won't take time to review those quotes that I've used in other messages. You've heard them in in previous messages. So let's just summarize. In first century Palestine, foot washing was considered just a meaning, just a, a low life task. Jewish slaves would never be asked. They were exempt from any kind of foot washing activity. Even pagan Gentile slaves were exempt from washing feet. But foot washing still happened and could be used as a 
as an ultimate expression of devotion, affection, and honor. But never, ever, was it appropriate for a superior to stoop to wash the feet of a subordinate. It was just unheard of, unprecedented. And yet, that is exactly what Jesus is doing here. The master washing the feet of his followers. Peter's initial response was completely understandable. And Jesus seems to accept Peter's initial reaction with a not now, but later response. The New Living Translation reads, you don't understand now what I'm doing, but someday you will. That is as applicable today as it was in Peter's day, in that upper room on the night that Jesus would be betrayed. Think about it. There are kinds of happenings in this life that you and I certainly do not understand. Reminds me of that young pastor speaking at the memorial service for the Humboldt Broncos hockey players who were killed in that horrific bus, bus crash a number of months ago. These are not his exact words, but essentially what he said. I don't have any answers, but I know that God is still on the throne and that he loves us and that his will, his sovereign will, will be accomplished. It was a raw and emotional expression of faith in the midst of tragedy. Jesus' response to Peter's initial reaction revealed a promising perspective. But you will understand hereafter. Not surprisingly, Peter was not satisfied or deterred by Jesus' initial response. Look at verse 8. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Peter's continuing protest became even more adamant, more pronounced, and maybe a little bit irrational too. Certainly less defensible. Peter was telling the Christ, the Son of God, God dressed in human flesh what he could and what he could not do. Never shall you wash my feet, exclamation mark. Cynthia and I had the opportunity to stay overnight and look after our three grandsons, ages one, three, and five this week. And I would say waiting until later is just not an option. <laughs> Maybe that was what was going through Peter's mind. And yet Jesus was so patient. If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. 
In other words, we will not be joined together. The Greek word used here is often used in, when talking about inheritances. You will have no inheritance with me. You may want to underline that I in your Bibles. If I do not wash you, Jesus is now speaking metaphorically about a spiritual washing. And he is claiming to be the only one who is qualified to perform that kind of washing. Unless I wash you, you will have no part of me. The New Living Translation offers, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. Titus chapter 3, verse 5, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 and 26, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. That is, the word of God, the scriptures. Jesus, in response to Peter's continuing protest, revealed a relational prerequisite. Peter had reacted to their initial exchange with conviction and defiance. Jesus reminded them of their complete dependence on the washing that only he could provide. Now look at verses 9 and 10. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. Here we find Jesus responding to Peter's passionate U-turn. It's a complete reversal. The pendulum has now swung to the opposite extreme. Peter may not have understood the spiritual implications in the bathing-washing metaphor, but he certainly understood the implications of having no part with Jesus. In Peter's mind, that was never an option. From the moment he left his fishing nets some two and a half years earlier, Peter was all in. So the leap from defiance to an exaggerated submission was as easy for Peter as taking his next breath. It's interesting, verse 10 draws a distinction between those who have bathed and those who need to be washed. Those who have bathed would be genuine believers. That is, those who are trusting Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. When we admit our sinfulness, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There are no exceptions. Repent, wanting nothing to do with sin and asking God to forgive us on the basis of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. God promises to forgive us and make us his children. 
Psalm 32, verse 5 reads, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you, you forgave the guilt of my sin. All that leads to this great exchange that's talked about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In other words, his righteousness become, becomes ours. Our sin becomes his. So that all genuine believers' sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven as God now sees us through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Perfect, holy, complete. However, you and I know otherwise. I sin both knowingly and unknowingly on a fa fairly regular basis. And you do too. Theologically speaking, it's referred to as positional and progressive or practical sanctification. Positionally, we are sanctified. We are holy, perfect, complete. But practically, we're still working through it. Working out our salvation as God works in us. Philippians chapter 2, verses 13, 12 and 13. Trusting Christ sets us free from the bondage of sin. As believers, we are no longer slaves to sin. We now have the ability to escape all temptation. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 makes it clear. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will with the temptation provide a way to escape also, so that you will be able to endure. Unfortunately, as believers, we still suffer from this sin hangover. And as a result, we struggle to live the life that we've been set free to live. We make poor choices. We surrender to temptation. We sin. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, candid, it speaks candidly about what you and I already know is true. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But the good news is verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's washing. We don't need a bath, but we do need to make a habit of washing on a regular basis to confess our sins. When we confess our sins, we put ourselves in the best possible position to take full advantage 
of the resources that God has made available for us to work out our salvation, to experience life as he intended. Jesus, in response to Peter's passionate U-turn or reversal, revealed a sanctifying provision. I find verse 11 rather interesting. First of all, that John included it at this point in the narrative. It's almost like a parenthetical statement. But I think there are two reasons or two things we need to note here, or maybe three that this verse clarifies. First of all, Jesus knew, and John does not want us to forget, that Judas is still in the room. He's present when all this is going on. His feet were washed, and he heard the exchange that was taking place between Peter and Jesus. Secondly, that Judas, though numbered among the twelve, was not bathed. Jesus washed his feet, but he was not clean. And that clarifies that clarification helps us to interpret John chapter 13, verse 10 correctly, that Jesus is indeed speaking about a spiritual cleansing, the forgiveness of sin. And thirdly, perhaps the most significantly that we can draw from verse 11 is that Jesus' patience should never, and I mean never, be viewed as permissiveness. Judgment denied, judgment delayed, is not judgment denied. Judas will bear the consequences of his choices, as will anyone who refuses to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But God's love is patient. Jesus, as God dressed in human flesh, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. His patient correction of Peter puts God's patience on display. As 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 claims, the Lord is not slow concerning his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient. He's patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. In John chapter 4, verse 8, we're told that God is love. Remember in John, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4, Love is patient. Therefore, if God is love in his essence, in his very being, and the essence of love is patience, then God's love has to be patient. Quick survey of Israel's history leaves no doubt as to the long-suffering, slow-to-anger patience of God. Listen to how he's introduced how he introduced himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, when Moses goes up on the mountain to once again 
get a second set of tablets because the first ones were broken. God says, Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, long-suffering, patient, allow me to continue reading, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Again, let me say that it would be a mistake to presume on God's patience. God's patience is never to be viewed as permissiveness. Hear the psalmist's testimony. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger. There it is again. Patient, long-suffering, and abounding in loving kindness. Psalm 103, verse 8. Listen to these verses from the book of Nehemiah. They paint a picture of what epitomized the nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament and how God continued to respond to that nation. But they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and would not listen to your commands. They refused to listen, did not remember your wondrous deeds which you had performed among them. So they became stubborn and appointed, and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger. There it is again. Patient, long-suffering, and abounding in loving kindness, and you did not forsake them. Wow. God's love is patient. He is long-suffering, and he's slow to anger. Folks, we need to be thankful and repentant. Grace has often been defined as getting what we don't deserve, whereas mercy, then, is not getting what we really deserve. I'm thankful every day that God does not give me what I deserve. It's just scary to even think about it. Instead, I'm going to choose to focus on Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. The faithful, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation, the faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh every morning. Thank you, Lord. Never go tired. Never grow tired of expressing your gratitude for God's patient love. Be thankful and then Heed the warning of Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you think lightly of, his, of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? Do you think lightly of it? Not knowing that the kindness of the Lord leads you to repentance? 
That's the whole purpose of his patience. God's patience is intended to lead us to a once and for all time repentance that secures our salvation. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. In addition to a repentance that secures our salvation, God's patience is intended to lead genuine believers to habitual repentance that facilitates our sanctification. The first one is a bath. The second one is washing. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, Jesus provided the results of his, I think, church health assessment is what we would call it today. At the end of chapter 2, we find his report on the church in Thessalonica. Listen to this, beginning at Revelation chapter 2, verse 21. I gave her time to repent. There it is again. God's patience, long-suffering, slow to anger. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to turn away from her immorality. Therefore, I will throw her on a bed of suffering, and those who commit adultery with her will suffer greatly unless they repent and turn from all her and turn away from her evil deeds. Turning away from sin to a life lived under the authority of this book. Becoming increasingly holy and pleasing to God. Be thankful and repentant. Over a year ago, a young man contacted Cynthia and I. He had come to the end of himself. He found after years of living for himself, apart from God, it just wasn't working for him any longer. He was broken. He said he was done running. The weight of the sin was crushing him. He was pleading with us for some kind of relief. As we talked, Psalm 51 came to mind. I suggested that he read it and follow King David's example. Psalm 51 speaks of the value of genuine repentance. In closing, I'd like to read it for us from the New Living Translation. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. 
for I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night against you, and you alone have I sinned. I've done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me, but you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. Oh, give, back, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence, and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach your ways to rebels, and they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O God, that my mouth may praise you. You do not desire a sacrifice, or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifices you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. Look with favor on Zion and help her. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will be pleased with sacrifices offered in the right spirit, with burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will again be sacrificed on your altar. By the way, having followed the, the footsteps of the psalmist, the change in that young man's life over the past few years has been nothing short of miraculous. Jesus loves me, this I know, and he loves you too. God's love for you and for me, it overcomes all kinds of deterrence, displays itself, and is patient. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we're able to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And that your love for us can overcome all kinds of deterrence, and it's not just words, but you display your love for us in real practical ways. And finally, that your love is patient, long-suffering, slow to anger. You wait patiently, providing all that we need to win our battles over sin. With you, it is possible. May we fight the good fight cheering one another on, holding each other accountable, refusing to excuse inappropriate behavior in ourselves and or in others. 
May we be quick to confess our sin, repent, and ask for your forgiveness. Keep us from becoming discouraged when, we, when the progress seems slow. We're proud when we win victories that are worth celebrating. Provide the strength required to keep fighting, to take full advantage of your ways to escape the temptations that we'll face even this week. And may our motivation always be to please you and not to impress others. Enable us to be a grateful people who never take for granted the opportunities your patience has and will provide us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.